Muy buenos días, hermanos. Que Dios les bendiga. These three languages and three greetings we hear this morning all over Peru and Ecuador throughout the Andes as teams like yourself go down and work through English and Spanish and Quechua in the various churches and worship services that will be happening there. I do bring you greetings this morning from your brothers and sisters at the Ninth and O Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, as well as from the brothers and sisters that I was with in Ecuador this past week as I asked them to be praying for me that I would make connections and get here uh, so that I could be here. So it's a blessing that you have invited me. It's also a great blessing from God's grace and providence that he allowed all that to happen because we did make our plane in Houston at a dead run, but we made it uh, before they closed the door. And I was able to uh, get some rest last night before able to be, uh, before coming here today. I love being able to share about missions, and especially I love sharing about missions at Christmas time in Baptist churches. But it's this time of year that we turn our attention more than at any other, usually, toward international missions and how we might be a blessing to the people beyond our four walls. We should do this all the time, but our thoughts go here this time of year, perhaps more than any other. God is pleased when His people get involved in missions. He Himself has a missionary heart. We see this throughout His Word. He has called us to it. And He blesses those people and churches that are involved in missions for His glory in His world. It has been said before, it's not trite. I have seen it at work over and over throughout the world as God's given me the opportunity to travel, to teach, to take teams, to preach in different places, that the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. It's not just logically true, it's also true in the lives of churches. You look at those churches that are most dynamic, that have the most impact, people full of joy, people full of growth in the spirit, those are also the churches that are looking beyond their four walls. They're not so concerned about being keepers of the aquarium they're more concerned about being fishers of men. And God blesses them for that because throughout His Word we see that that's what He wants us to do. To be channels of His blessing rather than simply reservoirs to receive everything that He would give us, whether it's financial, uh, whether it's insights into the Scriptures, uh, trained leadership, whatever it is that you have, when you're seeking to share that with others, God blesses you with more so that you can share that with others. Just as we could take a, a barrel of water fill it up to the top where no water could get out, no more water can come in, after a while, you know, it gets uh, what my daughter would call yuck. I mean, it's not any good anymore. You don't want to drink it. You don't want to be near it. And people get that way. But if we can receive what God gives us and give it out, we stay fresh because He constantly gives us more. I think God is actively looking for people and churches who will be channels of blessing rather than simply trying to receive it and keep it all for ourselves. He's looking for people with a missionary heartbeat. Now, we have to ask ourselves, so we're all on the same page as we begin today, what in fact is a missionary? Uh, there are a lot of technical definitions that I make my students have to learn, and it has to do with things like crossing boundaries, whether they're linguistic or social or geopolitical or whatever it might be, and all those things are true. But really, in a broader scale, for every evangelical believer... A missionary is someone who cannot get used to the sound of pagan footsteps on their way to a Christless eternity. And when we begin to be haunted by the 
thought, by the knowledge that all of these people around the world haven't heard the gospel, we want to get them the gospel somehow. Every Christian should have that heartbeat, that burden. This morning, while we are gathered here preparing to, to celebrate the coming of Christ, we should keep in mind that a third of the people on this planet have never heard the gospel. They perhaps have never even heard Jesus' name. Over half of the people groups in the world have never heard the gospel. A quarter of the population of the planet lives in a land that is isolated from the gospel. That is, there's no Bible, there's no Jesus film, there's no missionary, there's no church, there's no Christian radio. They're, they're totally isolated from the gospel. As we are here to celebrate this morning and to worship the Lord during this season of year, we need to remember that we have a great blessing the rest of the world does not have. Southern Baptists for years had as our goal to be 10,000 missionaries on the mission field. And that would be an admirable goal. Except we say that we have 16 million members. And even though we can't find half of them with a search warrant, we say that we have that many. And even if we only had 10 million, what if we were only putting 10,000 of that 10 million members on the mission field where people still need to hear the gospel message? And, and that thing that we would boast of begins to pale into perhaps a little bit of embarrassment. But in fact, we have gotten to have about 5,700 international missionaries scattered around the world today. But because in recent years, missions giving has been going down and down and down, that coupled with the economic downturn that we're suffering right now in uh, our country has resulted in the International Mission Board saying, you know, we're not actually going to be able to sustain 5,700 on the field, much less go beyond that. And so we're going to scale it back to about 5,000 missionaries on the field today. We were sending out about 400 college graduates who will go for two years, what we call the journeyman program. Um, 400 is okay. I mean, it does, doesn't match the Mormons' thousands that they send out for two years of service, but still 400 would be better than what we're going to do now, which is uh, 70 per year. Instead of 5,700 on the year, the board says we're going to come back to about 5,000 and hope we can at least sending out, keep sending out that many, which means they're going to be appointing, instead of 700 a year, they're only going to be appointing 200 or so per year. The programs where people could go for a couple of years, uh, especially those that are empty nesters or retirees that might want to go for a couple of years, those programs have been wiped out, taken off the books. Now you can still do that, but only if you pay your own way raise your own support, or somehow go that way. Even though a third of the planet has never heard the gospel, a quarter of the planet lives in lands that are isolated from the gospel message. And we still enjoy all of the blessings that we have. Tonight, before you go to bed, 40,000 children will die from starvation and hunger-related diseases. That happened yesterday. Before we went to bed, it wasn't on the news, 40,000 children died because they don't have enough food to eat. 6,000 people die every single day because they don't have clean drinking water. That happened yesterday. It'll happen tonight. It'll happen again tomorrow night and on and on until something happens. But of the number of people who have never even heard the gospel, every single day, 50,000 more or less die and go into a Christless eternity. They are sinners. Their sin has separated from them from God. They know 
no gospel message. They have no missionary to share it with them. They have no scriptures in their language. And every day, from just that number, about 50,000 people die and go to hell. A thousand years from now, they will still be in hell. And if we could measure time this way, a million years in the future, they will still be in hell. Because they lived in lands where there was no gospel message being proclaimed, being lived out. There was no preacher. There was no Bible. There was no Christian living out Christianity, discipling people and sharing the gospel with others. We were here. Every year of all of the seminaries, not just ours at, at Southern Seminary, but all of the seminaries, evangelical seminaries in the United States, 95% of their graduates stay in the United States. Only 5% of the trained pastors and missionaries, Bible teachers, whatever, only 5% go to the world. The problem is 95% of the world's population is outside of the U.S. Only 5% is here. We've got it exactly backwards. Now, I'm not trying to guilt anybody into going to the mission field. That's not who I am. And I'm not trying to play the Holy Spirit of saying who should go where. But I've got to tell you, I have to wonder when I realize that 80% of Southern Baptist pastors pastor within 200 miles of their wife's mama. I, you know, I'm wondering who's calling whom sometimes. Again, I'm not trying to guilt anybody into going somewhere the Lord's not leading them to go. In fact, I wrote a book last year called uh, The Missionary Call. And in that book, Moody Publishers pulled out a sentence, which is sort of the theme of the book, and put it on the back cover so everybody would know when you pick up that book, what's this, what's this guy's position? The, the, the sentence is, the highest and best use of anyone's life is to do what God calls them to do in the place where he calls them to do it. If God has called you to be a housewife in Somerset, if he has called you to be a banker in Louisville, if he has called you to be a carpenter in Dallas, whatever it is he's called and gifted you to do, you cannot glorify God better than by doing that. I don't want anybody to feel guilted and to go to the mission field. If I guilt you into going there, I'm going to have to go there and keep guilting you to make you stay. God is the one who calls people. God is the one who sends people, gifts them, and sends them out. But we need to keep on our front burner that well, what J. Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission, used to say, uh, the father of faith missions, we call him, the Great Commission is not an option to consider. It is a commandment to obey. And we need to get serious, though it might sound trite, about making Christ's last command our first priority. Now, I'm not saying you have to pack up and go. We're going to talk throughout this time, see different ways that we can manifest or... or realize, express this burden we have for the nations without packing up and going. But there are probably some people in this room right now that God is beginning to call that we will pack up and go. You may not go this year or next, but at some point in your life, you're going to say, okay, now's the time. Perhaps when you were a sunbeam, an RA, a GA, something in the past, or maybe right now, you began to realize this call to missions, and it's been delayed. It's waiting for the for the season to be perfect, but when it comes, you're going to know, okay, we're empty nesters now, we're retirees now, or it's this point in our life where it's time to leave this and go to that. I don't know when that is, but you'll know. And remember, a missionary is anyone who can't get used to the sound of pagan footsteps on their way to a Christless eternity. You'll begin to think about the things that are so true in our world, these thousands going to hell every day, cut off from the gospel, Cut off from grace, as it were, but still very much sinners needing to hear the gospel message, needing missionaries to come and share. 
Now, if you were to look around the world today, you might wonder, well, how have our priorities gotten to where they are? For instance, right here in the United States, Southern Baptists spend $1.31 per person for missions outreach. But around the world, we only spend $0.04 per person for missions outreach. Southern Baptist Church is reported receiving $12.5 billion, that's with a B, $12.5 billion in revenue last year, giving that came to them. And only 2.5% of that made it outside of this country. 2.5% of everything that we receive goes beyond our borders to the unreached while we are the most reached country the world's ever known. Just look about your Bibles. I, my major in my undergraduate work was biblical studies. When I went to seminary at New Orleans Seminary, I, my, my uh, specialization or area of study was Master Divinity in Biblical Studies. When I was teaching on the mission field, I taught biblical languages and biblical studies. That's what I did. That's how my heart beats. God speaks to me through His Word. I love His Word. It guides me. It gives me hope in difficult times. But you know of the almost 7,000, 6,813 languages in the world, which really should be divided because of dialects and stuff to about 12,000 languages because they don't really understand each other. But let's just take the big grouping. 7,000 languages in the world. There are 411 Bibles. 411 languages have the Bible out of the 7,000 languages. About 1,700 adequate New Testaments. I have a little uh, poster in my office. It's got quotation marks and a blank page and then quotation marks. And at the bottom it says, this is John 3.16 in over 3,000 languages in the world. They don't, they don't have anything. They don't know how to read. They've never read anything. Their language has not been reduced to writing, so of course they don't have the Bible. They're oral culture people. So much of the task remains undone, unfinished, or even untouched. Amy Carmichael, maybe you read about uh, the great missionary to India, first to China and then to, or to Japan and then to India. She used to say that all of the work of all of the missionaries around the world is like a grain of sand and the need is like a pyramid everything that we're seeking to do right now is good nobody's throwing any rocks at that but we dare not sit comfortably while the need is so great and while so many people are dying and going to hell every gospel every at least as far as we know, left behind by the Holy Spirit gospel book in our New Testament and the book of Acts has some form of the gospel of the Great Commission, the gospel being given out to the nations. And Jesus came near and he spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And some of that we do. But on a global scale, how are we doing? How are we really doing today in the world? Well, on a global scale, as we'll look at a little bit in just a few moments, in the few hours we have this morning. No, we don't, I know we don't have a few hours. But in the time that we have, uh, we'll look a little bit to see how we're doing. But, you know, compared to Mormons and Muslims, we're not doing that well. They are very evangelistic. They are growing rapidly. And we have become comfortable. And we are satisfied 
And if we can grow a little bit by at least adding some of the people that apply for new power meters in our communities, then, then our people who visit us, we visit them and try to get, you know, we, we, this seems to be enough for lots and lots of churches. The vision that exists for missions here that you might become comfortable and used to, this is not found in all of our churches. People who want to go to other countries and share the gospel and see churches planted, you have a great blessing here that some churches just don't know. I can't communicate that strongly enough to you to dedicate a Sunday to this, but to also have an effort that goes to another country, um, I really and truly believe that un although un this is unfortunately a rarity, this will also be the place where God will pull it, put his hand of blessing because you choose to look beyond just what we could do for ourselves. So how are we doing? When I look into the Bible, which is where I look for everything, I'm reminded of a time in Israel's history when they had not been quite faithful to finishing the task that they had been given to do. They weren't really even that serious about it. You remember when, when Moses died, Joshua received a challenge. He received a goal, job from God that he needed to do. It was very clearly defined. Joshua, take the children of Israel across the Jordan River and conquer the land. It wasn't a big place. It was only about, if you, in fact, if you had a highway that you could just drive down from the top of Israel to the bottom, then and now, you could drive it in about three hours. From one side to the other, in a little over an hour. It wasn't a big country, it's not now. And Joshua had the people of God, the presence of God, the command of God, the promises of God, and he went in, and you're thinking, you know, we're talking a few weeks here. At the end of his life, when he's an old man, God shows up. In Joshua 13, 1, and he says, Joshua, you are old and advanced in years. And very much of the land remains to be possessed. Now, you know, I used to look at that, and I would be so frustrated with Joshua, thinking, come on, man, I mean, you, this is a job. Just think if you had actually done it, how different the story would be. But we see that all the people who were still there, that they were kind of making friends with, and unfortunately even making families with, that was diluting the true worship of the one true and living God. And I used to be very judgmental about Joshua. But I wonder if the Lord were to look at us today, if he might wonder, you know, you're 2,000 years old here, church, and look around the world. Very much of the land remains to be possessed. Joshua, though, gets his thoughts together, and in Joshua 18, verse 3, he says to the sons of Israel, How long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? It's time, Israel. Get up and go. What about if Joshua were to stand here today, taking into account the great commission that we've had for 2,000 years, which is the marching orders for Christ's church. He says the very gates of hell won't prevail against you. And we say, well, that's nice to know, and we tuck that away. But how much are we really trying to conquer hell, to invade hell's territory and shine light in dark places? It won't be able to prevail against us but we just think that's nice to know and we file it away. You say, well, now, brother, it's a big world, you know. There is some gospel-hostile places in this, in this place. We're doing the best we can. There's not that many of us. We've only been at it for a couple thousand years. The world's been here a long time, and, and well, you know, we're growing. We're doing what we can. I was at a conference in, in Thailand uh, for the Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization. I ran into an old college professor of mine and he had long since gotten out of Bible teaching and was doing um, administration 
And he said, well, what are you here for? And I said, well, I'm talking with the orality people. We're looking at how we could get the scriptures in an oral form around the world that these people who don't have the Bible yet can at least begin to hear the gospel before they do begin to read and write and things like that. And he said, you mean you guys don't have the Bible in all the languages yet? And sort of tongue-in-cheek. I said, well, actually, no. And he said, well, what's the problem? And then also, I hope tongue-in-cheek, he said, you know, if you could just take that, give it to some businessmen and show them how they could make a profit out of it, he said, we'd get this thing done. And we kind of laughed about it. But, you know, that stayed in my head. I kept thinking about that. Because in uh, 1896, in Atlanta, there was this guy working in his laboratory and he mixed together water and flavoring and sugar and different stuff like that. Came up with the stuff you're supposed to drink. Called it Coca-Cola. Well, he didn't do so well. It cost him $70 to make it and he only sold $50 worth. And in 1896, a $20 loss was a pretty good hit. But he stayed at it. A few years later, this guy in Vicksburg, Mississippi, who had a candy store, figured out how to put it into bottles with tops on it so that you could take it home or take it on a picnic away from the soda fountain. Well, here we are to cut to the chase, 113 years later. And the Coca-Cola logo and product is known and recognized by 94% of the people on planet Earth. I have been as far out as we could drive in the jungle in the Oriente part of Ecuador, gotten in a dugout canoe and gone three days in a dugout canoe out into the jungle, gotten out and been walking down, going from one village to the next village and look and there'll be a Coke can under a bush. In fact, I mean, this is sad, but if I, I tell people, you know, when they want to learn languages and things like that, uh, so if you want to speak a little bit of every language in the world, just so you can show off at Christmas, tell everybody you're multilingual, you speak a little bit of every language in the world, you can do it. Right now I can teach you. There are three words you need to know. Amen, hallelujah, and Coca-Cola. They're the same anywhere you want to go. You can use that. You can get around. Because the world knows that. In, a, in 113 years, we've done it for profit. In 2,000 years, we haven't done it in obedience to his command and to bring him glory around his world. The very thing that we're here to do. We can do it. We just don't do it. Because we prefer our comfort zones. But God is pleased when his people are involved in missions. It is his great commission. And so much of it remains undone. I want to speak specifically to what remains undone in Peru and throughout the Andes that we find today. Because, uh, as your pastor said, we were missionaries in Ecuador for many years. Um, I did a, a couple of dissertations that turned into books for the indigenous peoples of the Andes. That was really our work. We didn't work as much with the mestizo work, the you know, regular Latin American kind of people, Spanish-speaking people, as we did with the Quechua and Quechua-speaking peoples. And now, here in the States, I'm involved in the REAP program with the IMB throughout the Andes. I do the teaching for the stateside churches when they go to Atlanta for the once-a-year training. I go over there and uh, teach. I go to Peru and teach for the REAP people down there, teaching the local nationals. And our church in Louisville is involved in a REAP project as well, reaching out to an unreached portion of the Quechua folks. So... You know, I come to this with a little bit of background. I'd like to speak to us really about where we are in, uh, in Latin America. But let's focus in a little bit just on South America. You know, oftentimes we'll hear from the press about the unreached, unchristian peoples in China or India. And yes, there are zillions of unreached people in India. But just the continent of South America, there are a little over 600 and and a little, little over 600 people groups, people estimate, 612 people groups, in, just in the South American continent. 
Of the 612 people groups that are there, over 500 are still unreached people groups in South America. Of the 500 unreached people groups, the IMB is only targeting two. So 498, if, we're, if my math is correct, about 498 people groups are not only unreached and unengaged, they're not on the IMB's radar screen. They're not ever going to be. Because the IMB has said, we've got so few missionaries, we can only do so much. So we're going to target those groups that are over 100,000 people. If you're under 100,000 people, we just can't do it. We're not even going to think about it. We don't have the money, missionaries, or resources to think about it. So, to their credit, what they did is they turned around and they looked at North America, at the Southern Baptist churches, and they said, look, we know where all these people are. We're not going to target them because we don't have enough people. But if you will adopt one and you will target them, we'll show you where they are. We'll tell you how to rent a car. We'll get you started in the right direction to do the work that you need to do. And thus was born the REAP program, where churches go down and do that kind of work, trying to target the 498 and reach them and teach them for Christ's sake. We look at countries like Peru and Ecuador. The vast majority of evangelical Protestant work there is about 50 years old. Um, getting close to 60 years old now. We haven't been there as long as we've been in other places like China, Nigeria, some of those kinds of places. Brazil even, we've been there a little longer. But even though that's true, in recent years a number of mission agencies have turned their attention elsewhere and have changed their strategies. They've gone to places where you know, it makes better headlines to say we are reaching the unreached in India or the Middle East or Somalia or even China. The places where we've had the gospel for a while, well, they can handle it now. Even though the work is not finished, even though many of these groups have not even been reached, they say, well, they'll just have to reach their own because we're going to go to those places where it's more, popula more populated and there are even fewer Christians. But before we turn away from a fragile church like that, we have to stop and ask ourselves, what has God called us to do? I have, I've written another book that comes out next year. It's going to be called Reaching and Teaching. Why? Because that's the whole heartbeat of what I do as a professor, my mission ministry that I do outside of seminary work, and what I believe God's Word tells us to do. We are not just to reach the unreached. We are to reach and teach. Some missionaries operate as if God has called us to reach and leave as many people as we possibly can. That if all I have to do is reach them, then once they're reached, I need to go reach the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one, which means I need to reach and leave as many as I can in all of my life. You look over your shoulder, and what do you leave behind? What you leave behind are people who call themselves Christian. But they don't know who Jesus is. They don't really understand what Christianity looks like in their context. Nobody has discipled anybody. They've just heard about this gospel message. They're not sure what it means because they didn't hear it in a culturally appropriate way. And now they just simply mix it together with what they always believed before. The eight-cylinder word for that is syncretism, but all it is is simply a mixture of religions that is not Christianity. And unfortunately, it's not even what they had before either. It's just a mixture that they think is what God wants them to have. A lot of land remains to be possessed for churches in Peru. When Christianity first began to go in in an evangelical Protestant form, what they found was churches that claim the name of Christ in a facade of Catholicism, with a facade of Catholicism that was still really just the animism and spirit worship and sorcery and, 
and the fear of, of magic and all that kind of thing. That's what was really there. That's what is still there. But it might be called Catholicism. 95% of the people in the country say they're Catholic. They don't know who the Pope is. They don't know what Roman canon law teaches or anything like that. And when I talk about that, I'm not, I wouldn't throw rocks at um, Catholicism. If your Aunt Susie is Catholic and that sort of thing, that's fine. But I would have you to know that the Catholicism we have in Latin America is not the Catholicism that's here. That's another sermon for another day that I'd really like to preach. But let's just talk about the Roman Catholicism we have down there. It's just a mixture with Indian religions. Even John Paul II, when he toured the area, didn't recognize it. He said, with a sort of a shocked expression, Latin America needs to be re-evangelized. Because even the Catholics don't even recognize what they call Catholicism. The nuns down there, the nuns, dynamited one of our churches off the side of the mountains. Um, you know, th these, this is a different kind of Catholicism than you might find here. Okay, and w There's a lot of reasons for that. But among the Quechua people, they lived under the domination of the very strong haciendas and the Catholic Church for about 500 years before evangelicals first started coming in. When we came in and began to preach the gospel, when evangelicals first came in and began to preach the gospel, people began to turn to the Lord. People began to accept Christ. And there was sort of a, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in various pockets of the Andes. But Andes are such rough mountains and such a rough terrain that there are segments very close to them that have never heard the gospel at all. When this outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred about the 1950s to 1970s, a number of these Quechua people came to know the Lord, but they didn't have churches. There were very few churches. When I was down there working, these people would always tell me, though, the leadership would always say, Brother, whatever you do, don't plant any more churches. And I think, what? I mean, you need lots of churches. What do you mean don't plant any more churches? And they'd say, because of the churches we have, a pastor might have to be the pastor of 8, 10, or 12 churches, which means nobody has a pastor. And even of those pastors, none of them, none of them have had theological education and pastoral preparation none because there is no place to do that they said what we need is responsible leadership we need some trained leadership in fact when I, I did for the PhD dissertation I did I, I was my question as I went throughout the Andes talked with those people I said what's your greatest need I thought they might say money government representation uh, medical care there are a lot of things they could have said because they're the poorest of the poor but to a man every single one of them said trained leadership is what we need we don't, we don't know how to do this we don't have we don't know what the Bible teaches. We don't know how to defend ourselves when we're speaking with other people because we've never been trained. Yes, they need churches. They need lots of churches. They need hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of churches, just to be able to, reach, to, to minister to the people that are there, that are already believers. But what they need in those churches is trained leadership. There's an old adage in missions that when your church growth outstrips your trained leadership, you're in trouble. And that's where we are. We have areas like the area that you've adopted where people don't know the gospel. They don't know Jesus. They don't know, they, they must hear the gospel. But we dare not just share the gospel and get back on the bus and go to the next village. We've got to leave behind some disciple-trained people. Why? Because that's what we find in the Bible. That's what Paul did. Remember he said that's why he left Titus on Crete, that he might make sure that there is responsible, biblically qualified leadership in every one of those little towns. Paul, even though he said, I want to preach Christ where he's never been named, and Paul was always reaching out to new places, he was also going back. 
and visiting those places and writing letters to correct errors or sending Timothy or Silas, someone in his place to, cor to correct, rebuke, if necessary, where the work still remained to be done. In the Latin American, Latin American mestizo churches, uh, Spanish-speaking churches, uh, right at half of the churches don't have a pastor. And of the half of the churches with pastors, those pastors, only 15% of them have ever been to seminary or had the kind of training that they need. Even though the Bible says very plainly that we should have pastors who can rightly divide the Word of God, teach the people what it is they are to believe. Paul and Titus had done the work of church planting on Crete, but Paul left him there that he might take it to the next level. Every culture around the world worships something. But we don't leave them there, do we? Because we know that whatever they worship, if it is not the triune God, worshiping Him in a biblical way, our work's not done there. Everybody worships either rocks or stars or rock stars. Everybody worships something. And as we look around the world, we see that. We know they do because God says, Paul tells us in Romans 1, David, David told us in, in uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. They know that there's a creator. Everybody knows that. There's no such thing as an honest atheist. Everybody knows there's a creator. And in our hearts, Paul says in Romans, in Romans 2, 14 and 15, God's given us a conscience, his law written on our heart, the ability to, to say this is good, this is bad. We can do that. Animals can't do that, but we can do that. God's given that to every human being. So they try to worship this creator somehow to make things right. The problem is there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. You must hear the gospel and be born again to go to heaven when you die. There is only one way. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. Peter was preaching. He said, there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. I don't care how many religions they invent or how zealous and sincere they are in those religions. If they're not coming to God through Christ, they are not coming to God in salvation. They're not receiving the right relationship. False worship will always exist where true worship doesn't. False teaching will always exist where true teaching does not. False views of God will exist where true views of God don't exist. Where would that come from then? It has to come from His Word and not me making up what I think it means but receiving the kind of training that will help me to be able to tell my people this is what it means. This is what I've been taught it means. This is how I've been discipled. This is how the Holy Spirit leads me through the discipleship and the teaching I've received to give to you. That is what God has left us to do. We can only know Him and worship Him through His Word. If God had not given us the Bible, what would we know about Him? Precious little. That He exists and that we're sinners before Him. But that'd be about all we know. So that He has revealed Himself in His Word. People ask me, is there a biblical basis for missions? I say, no. Missions is the reason for the Bible. The, there is a missiological basis of the Bible more than there's a biblical basis for missions. In other words, a biblical basis of missions is true, but it's not nearly strong enough because God gave us His Word that we might know Him and make Him known. That's what the Bible's all about. And that's what missions is all about, knowing God and making Him known, the very reason God gave us His Word. God has charged us throughout the Old and the New Testaments to teach His Word, to train people, to disciple them, and to make sure that they come to know Him in a right way. Church education programs and seminaries are not charged with training pastors. We shouldn't just train pastors. We shouldn't just train teachers. 
You say, well, wait a minute. You had me right up to that one. What did Paul say? The things that you've heard from me, entrust these things to faithful men who can in turn entrust it to other faithful men. 2 Timothy 2.2, the idea is that we should not just train pastors. We should train trainers, teach teachers, disciple disciplers, so that if I get hit by a bus, the work continues all out throughout the Andes. I don't want to just train this guy so that he's got now gone through experiencing God or master life and now he's equipped. I want to train him how to lead other nationals to come to know God, to teach God's word, to believe right about Christian doctrine so that they can teach other people. All the classes that I teach when I'm working with the Quechua people out in the Andes, I always require them to have two students of their own. So everybody in the class has to. So that they go out and teach those two people. When they come back together the next week, we start off with the questions they got they couldn't answer. And then we move on. But why am I making, ask, making them teach two other people? Because we're multiplying the work and I'm teaching them how to be teachers in the process because they're learning by doing. And each week we kind of correct what didn't work out that well. And when I get through, I know I've got that many more trained people. One of the things I also require of them is that the two people that they train also have two people that they teach. Now, we're also having to go out there and fine-tune and correct along the way, but the Word of God gets out. Understanding of His Word gets out. The work that you're doing is important. But beyond that, the work that you're doing is essential. They can't come to know God unless they hear the Gospel. REAP is a wonderful opportunity to get involved in Peru, in this segment of the world where there's vast areas that have not heard the gospel and teach them what they need to know to come to know the Lord. It's also a great frustration and I feel it. Every time I take a team down there, every time I do training, there's this frustration and I have to do debriefing with it on the plane on the way home. And it is this. We saw some people come to know the Lord. Who's going to disciple these people? And I said, well, there's nobody there. The IMB said that up front. We're not there. That's why we're asking you to go. We're just going to have to go back and pick up where we left off. The frustration is, imagine if you had a business, or for those of you in ministry, imagine you had a youth ministry in a country where you don't live, and you only go there three weeks a year, one week at a time. I mean, that would be hard. And you'd have to reinvent the wheel lots of times. But anything you do when you go is more than they had before you went. And if you don't go, frankly, humanly speaking, they're not going to hear. It is a wonderful opportunity to go, but it is an opportunity that they themselves see they need. The last time I was there teaching down in Nazca, for all the national people who work with REAP churches like yourself, they gathered those national guys together, and, and I was down there to teach them. They had heard that somebody would be there teaching. This one guy got on the bus in Iquitos, which is the far northeast corner of Peru, way out in the jungle. He got on the bus, took many buses, to finally arrive in Nazca. He stayed on a bus for 72 hours to come hear me teach for two days and as soon as it was over he went right back to the bus station and took the 72 hour trip back because he was so hungry for any teaching that he could get you might wonder how much good can we do in a one week trip down there trust me they themselves recognize the need to hear the truth from a way from someone who can tell them the way according to God's word that would be God's way not some invented way that they have come up with a, on their own. Now, God might be calling some of you to go for longer than a week. He might be calling you to go for a week or for a month, for summer, or to be Grace's 
boots on the ground and you're part of Peru from now on till the Lord says otherwise. Some of you are being called to go. I would feel very sure in a group like this. But all of us as Christians are to be involved in international missions. Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes, Baptist uh, pastor in England, great soul winner, used to say that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, is he saying you have to sell the farm and go? No, he didn't. So what did he mean? He meant that your heart should beat for the nations and you should be concerned about people who've not heard the gospel, hearing the gospel. People who've not been trained to love and worship God in a way that's honoring to him, receiving that which they need and seeing it expand. He said all of us should be that way. All of us should care. Some of you might be called to go. You know, Paul said in Romans 10, 13 to 15, in verse 13, he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We like that. Preach it, Paul. That's a good one. Then he said, well, well, now wait a minute. How can they call on somebody they've not believed in? And how can they believe in somebody if they've never heard? And how can they hear unless somebody preaches? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Every Christian is either a goer or a sender. If you're not one of those two things, Spurgeon says you're an imposter. The question is not whether or not you'll be a goer or a sender. The question is what kind of goer or sender will you be? Whatever you find to do that God has called you to, do it with all your might as unto the Lord and not unto man. Because your giving or your going might be the instrument that God uses to make the difference. Might be the instrument that God uses to bring somebody to himself Every goer, every sender, they have a couple of things in common. They both have a divine role to fulfill. And neither is possible without the other. If we were all just senders, well, we would be frustrated because nobody's going. But if we were all goers, we wouldn't be able to do it because nobody's sending. But God in his divine economy has so worked it out that every single one of us has a job to do. The question is, what is my role? And that as we go and we share the gospel with these people who desperately need to hear it and folks come to know the Lord and folks begin to plant churches and churches begin to have trained pastors. Paul's hope when he said, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, that will begin to be realized in the Chankai River Valley where you are working with these folks. Everybody's to be a goer or a sender. And according to that book the missionary call I, what I say in there is what I believe and I say this morning is God is calling whether to be a sender or whether to be a goer or whether to step up your going or step up your giving to send even more that's the calling that's going on and you might say well brother I don't hear anything you know I've been here I've been listening to you all, all morning and wonderful statistics and you know it's too bad we're not really doing any better than we are but maybe we'll you know think about next year doing a little better as far as Southern Baptist Convention is going I hope but he's talking to you he's calling this guy wrote a book about uh, being in Manhattan I don't know if you've ever been in Manhattan but it's a I love it it's like Pentecost in reverse you know every corner is another language being spoken and uh, I like getting on the subway and listening to all these different people seeing their national dress and that kind of thing well, if you've, if you've ever been up on the, like, uh, around Times Square, you know, it's uh, subways rushing under the sidewalk, buses going down the street, taxis squealing around the corner, honks, horns honking, and people 
uh, sirens going off, people shouting at one another. It's just pandemonium, chaos. I kind of like that um, for, for a short time. But, so I'm around that. I enjoy that. I'm thinking, I can really in, envision what this guy's writing about in this book. But he's walking down the sidewalk with this American Indian guy, friend of his. And the, Native, and the American Indian guy said, I hear a cricket. He said, what? He said, I hear, he said, you do not hear a cricket. He said, I do. And he looked over to the hotel where there were these two planters outside the two front doors, big entranceway thing. And this American Indian guy went over there and he reached under one of the planters and he said, see? He said, how did you do that? He said, there's nothing. I just heard it. I went over there to get it. He said, yeah, but, you know, normal people couldn't do that. He said, yes, they could. He said, watch this. And he reached his hand in his pocket. Now, remember, subways rushing under the street, buses going down the road, taxis squealing around the corner, people honking and sirens and screaming and all of that. He pulled out a hand of change and he dropped it on the sidewalk and every head within 30 feet turned to see. And he looked at his friend. He said, it just depends on what you're listening for. There are about a thousand, thousand different voices screaming for your attention this year, this time of year, this morning. And they scream loudly. God is also speaking. God is also calling. This morning, what are you listening for? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you would use people like me to go to places like Peru and to share your gospel message and to see people melt in tears as for the first time they hear that there really and truly is a God who will forgive their sin and embrace them now and for all eternity. We thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy. And we thank you for using us. Lord, if we understand your calling is not to be a goer. Lord, teach us to give sacrificially so that others can go, so that more can go, and they can stay longer when they get there. Help us keep the home fires burning and hold the ropes. Most of all, Lord, we just pray that you be glorified through us. However you choose to use us, we just pray that our circumstances would be such that we can best glorify you with the life you've given us, the gifts, the skills, and the calling. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for the advance of his kingdom. Amen.